This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me this week is Laura Souter. Hi there. So there's trouble on the high street after the collapse of Wilco. And we take a look at consumer rights when you get a company that fails like this. Uh, For example, what if you've got a gift card or you need a refund? Some of the Wilco stores are actually being taken over by third parties. Does that affect your rights? Stay tuned to find out. Sadly, that is not the only problem on the high street, as we've also seen a rise in shoplifting, and that presents a big headache for retailers, but also tells us a lot about the pressures on many people's finances. So we'll discuss that issue later in the podcast. Now, Ajabel's Russ Bold is on the show to explain why oil prices have shot up again and the implications for businesses and consumers. I'll dig into a new report looking at the gender investment gap and what women can do about it. We've also got some good news if you're eligible for the state pension. But first up, let's start with a look at what happened in the markets over the past week. So, Dan, do you want to give us some of the highlights? Yeah, Tesla shares got a big boost after there was a punchy research note from Morgan Stanley. Now, that's calling the business both an automotive and a tech company. Now, Morgan Stanley thinks that Tesla could receive a $500 billion boost to its stock market valuation because its supercomputer can power artificial intelligence for driverless cars. So Tesla's got this thing called Dojo. It's it's like a training system for autonomous vehicles. So it it analyzes information from lots of different databases that were gathered by cameras and sensors on millions of vehicles. Now, Tesla thinks that Dojo, uh, which went into production in July, will become one of the world's most powerful computer systems by early next year. Now, Morgan Stanley is saying that Dojo could be a standalone service, so broadening the company's addressable market. So if you add up all these sort of factors, um, you know, investors already seem to love Tesla and everything it does. So this is something else which sort of stirs the pot in terms of what if, which is um, which is all about what you know, why share, shares in Tesla have done so well over the recent years. What can this company do? Um, so yeah, so moving on to the other thing that was, as we were recording this podcast, the IPO of ARM was just about to happen. So by the time you're listening to this episode, um, we should see this stock already hit the, the US market. Now, some people might be familiar with the name ARM. It used to be on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, it was part of the FTSE 100. It was taken over in 2016 by SoftBank in Japan. Now, ARM doesn't actually make microchips, um, which I think a lot of people think it does. Instead, it, it designs the architecture on which chip makers actually create their their semiconductor designs. So it it sells the right to use these designs for customers over a fixed term and and takes a small cut of every chip that's produced by the customer using that design. So you have to think, okay, this is a really big tech company, um, obviously coming to the the US stock market rather than the UK this time. But um, I can sense that there's going to be lots of interest in it. And, And part of that down to the link to artificial intelligence so AI has you know, definitely been one of the hottest investment themes this year. Um, NVIDIA's kind of been the go-to stock for playing that theme. I actually think that ARM could be you know, almost like hitch a ride on that bandwagon. So I think that, you know, investors are looking for different ways to play AI. And I think there'll be lots of focus on what ARM could do in this space um, over the coming months. So we'll certainly look at that stock with interest on the podcast in a future edition. 
Um, and just finally, I just want to talk about restaurant groups. So this is like a, a business that owns various different brands um, that you should be familiar with. Now, it's it's selling um, a couple of those names, Frankie and Benny's and Chiquito. So, Laura, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're a massive Frankie and Benny's fan, aren't you? <laughs> I don't think I've been there since maybe I was a teenager. It used to be a very popular place at my school because – some people, and I was not involved in this, some people could get served underage drinks there. And so it was a popular place to go. Obviously, I stayed at home and was very sensible. So I don't think I have, I mean, that's about, that's a view of a restaurant that's about two decades old now. So I don't think I have anything current to add to Frankie and Benny's. Why are you there every week? <laughs> no, well, I think this is the problem. It, you know, I guess if you go back 10 years or more, it was really popular. Um, it kind of did that, you know, there's almost certainly something on the menu that you'll like, even fussy eaters. Um, but really, it became a really tired brand. So when, when we had like the rise of um, things like burritos and sort of posh burgers, you know, Frankie Benny's was just was just totally left behind. So now the restaurant group sort of having to take a look at its whole business, um, struggling with competition. So it's decided to it sold those um, brands to a third party in, in a rather unusual way. So. The deal was priced at a pound. Now, that sort of normal amount is actually sort of normal practice if you want to get rid of something that's problematic. But but actually, what the restaurant group's also going is it's paying this uh, third party seven point five million pounds to take these companies off its hands. Now, oh wow! Yeah, so you know that is unusual. It so it kind of shows how desperate it was to get rid of them, and you know it was losing money there. Um, it's got least liabilities to deal with, so um, it's left now with Wagamama. Um, a sort of chain of posh pubs. Um, and quite often, if you go into like an airport, you'll see um, the different restaurant brands, um, some you may not be familiar with, but you know, somewhere to get some food and drink before you get on the plane. A restaurant group owns quite a lot of those. It's called a concessions business. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, the stock market reaction was very positive to getting rid of them, which you think is a bit odd, particularly as it's having to shell out a load of cash to do this. Um, but people think it's right sizing the business, making it look a bit more smart than um, and sort of uh, a stronger platform for growing than it perhaps had before. Can I um, ask a question? Why would why would they uh, pay someone to take that business off their hands rather than maybe just spin it out and make it bankrupt or, or close it down? Is it that the liabilities on that business are way higher than the seven point five million they've handed over? Yeah, so obviously the, the the new owner is having to instantly deal with um, you know, it's got an estate of of, of you know, restaurants having to pay the um, the lease on those, you know, having to pay the rent on the on these these places. Um, these names need some investment in it. And I think the only way to, 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 to essentially get rid of them is to bundle up a package saying that, here you go, you've got two well-known brands, see if you can resurrect them. Also, you know, here's some money to cover sort of the, perhaps the sort of the near-term um, sort of overheads and, and things to make it work. But, you know, if you if you can do it, you, you, know, you should be able to you know, potentially, you know, there'll be some value generation for you with just, you know, we don't want to be the ones to deal with it. You know, we'll pass it over. So, the, so the company that's buying it is um uh, is involved in various brands. You know, including sort of Las Iguanas, and um they've got sort of form in, in taking other other names that are perhaps being a little bit tired and sort of sprucing them up a bit. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting deal. So, all the focus for Restaurant Group ultimately now is shift primarily back to to Wagamama. 
So it might be that we see a resurgence of Frankie and Benny. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, but let's move on to a worrying trend in the commodities markets and something that everyone needs to sit up and think about. AJ Bell's investment director, Russ Mould, is here to explain what's going on. So, Russ, there's some interesting movements uh, with the oil price at the moment. Brent crude has just topped $91, the highest since November 2022. Over the last two months, we've seen a 26% move higher in the oil price, and that is really quite unusual. So I guess the key question to start with is what is driving this oil price higher? I guess there are two things, not wanting to be glib, supply and demand. So if you look at demand first, it's probably been better than people expected, the market expected the International Energy Agency just raised its demand forecast for 2023 by a couple of million barrels a day. Doesn't sound a lot, but when supply is quite tight, that extra couple of percent makes a difference. And we haven't had the recession that equity and commodity markets were discounting at this time last year, and indeed right the way through to the spring. So again, that's been higher than expected demand. On the supply side, um, America stopped running down its strategic reserve, and we might come back to that one in a second. Uh, you still aren't seeing an awful lot of exploration because, let's face it, there's lots of environmental pressure for good reasons not to go, knocking holes in the Earth's crust. So US rig activity is down by a fifth on a year ago. Global rig activity is down by a few percent, even though the oil price is, is quite elevated. And the Biden administration is clamping down on shale for environmental reasons. And then the, the sort of the, the coup de grace, as it were, is this OPEC plus strategy largely led by Saudi Arabia and Russia to cut production. And that's definitely put the squeeze on supply. And that's why the oil price has popped up so sharply in the last few months. So if you just address that, that the US point, so they're running down the stockpiles. Is that because of, you know, are there any production problems in that country? Or is it, you know, it's just it's a strange thing to do. Uh, in an area when energy security is a, is a major concern, yeah, it, it is odd. I mean, the Biden administration took a conscious policy decision to run down the strategic petroleum reserve in the run-up to the November 22 um, midterm elections because the price of gasoline and inflation were big issues with the American voter. So the Biden administration more or less liquidated 300 million barrels of oil and it, it did make it a, an impact upon the oil price, but that's now stopped. The SPR is down to 350 million barrels against its long-run average of what, 700. At some stage, oil traders might be thinking mm, the administration needs to replenish that just to make sure there's energy security. Um, and, the, and the regular um, reserve that's non-government controlled is 770 million. That can go as high as 1.2 billion. They're both at the lowest level since the early 80s. And yeah, with the American economy keeping on firing, to a lot of people's surprise, um, that again has also been winding down the, the, the regular infantry. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a function of political choice and demand. And again, the Biden administration is not being particularly generous when it comes to granting new pipeline licenses or new licenses to go drilling for shale. So it's a combination of supply, demand, and policy. The equity markets have been holding up quite well, certainly in the last uh, few days as we're recording this. I'm just wondering why do you think that investors are not don't seem to be that worried about high oil price? Because surely that would suggest new inflationary pressures, and that can't be good for consumers or businesses. No, I guess it ties with the view that the recession that was being priced in at this time last year hasn't arrived. So in that respect, the equity and commodity markets, you can, you can argue, are on, on, on the same page. But yes, I think the equity market is much more pricing in a Goldilocks scenario of steady growth, disinflation, interest rates pivot and start to go down next year. And I think you're right that a really sticky oil price probably doesn't fit with that scenario. So maybe at some stage, 
either equity investors or commodity traders, one of them is going to be proven wrong. Nick, I would have thought that a higher oil price must be a worry to the Federal Reserve. Um, I guess it's another argument in favor of it keeping um, the, the current sort of trajectory and raising interest rates. Do you think that this is going to be um, part of their sort of discussion when they next do the interest rate decision I, meeting? I, I think it will. I mean, obviously, the oil price is completely beyond their control. I mean, they cannot print oil probably much as yeah. they would like to. Um, you know, and, and I think what's interesting is that if you look at the inflation figures in the UK, Europe, and the US, the headline inflation number has come down. The core inflation number has been a lot stickier and really hasn't budged very much at all. So a lot of the decline that we've seen in the headline figures has been down to oil and gas or government uh, assistance programs with heating bills. So I think that is going to be a concern for the, for the authorities on both sides of the Atlantic. And in the US, gasoline prices are creeping back up. We can see it here at the UK at the petrol forecourt as well. The US has got the additional complication in that the uh, Bureau for Labor Statistics made a big adjustment last year to private healthcare and medical costs. That's going to come. That's going to drop out in September. So that's going to be another leg up potentially in the CPI. And you've still got the lag of, of, of rent as well. So it wouldn't be a shock mathematically if the US inflation uh, cooling was to stop and maybe it was to reaccelerate. Maybe that's why the Fed has been talking a slightly tougher game of late at Jackson Hole and, and talking about maybe rates being higher for longer. Markets have pushed back their expectations for a first Fed rate cut to, what, the second half of next year. And it's also a complication for the Bank of England uh, and the uh, European Central Bank as well. So it, it, it would make it hard to justify lower interest rates if inflation proves sticky. But at the same time, I'm sure they don't want to push rates too high just because the, the amount of debt that there is in the system and the squeeze it's eventually going to put on consumers and corporations alike. So with, with Brent crude at $91, um, I know you're not a man to uh, to like to forecast things, Russ. But um, <laughs> do, do, do you think it's, it's sorry? I shouldn't laugh. Yeah, is it reasonable to suggest we actually could see a hundred dollars a barrel by the end of the year? I mean, it's interesting. Energy security is a is a massive theme. You can see the uranium price. The uranium price has popped above sixty dollars a pound for the first time in over a year. I know that's way below its its two thousand and seven peak of one hundred and forty. But energy security is an issue, and it's creeping out in. In lots of different areas, basically at a time when, you know, some of the wind turbine programs aren't going according to plan, either because the subsidies aren't big enough, or people don't think the economics work, or the turbines just don't work, whatever it whatever it happens to be. So I think that's tricky. Equally, I think OPEC is treading a fine line. It, it obviously wants oil prices at a certain level to put, you know, its members have their own welfare programs to fund their own infrastructure programs. Saudi Arabia is building this city in the desert, whatever it is. Um, but equally, they don't probably push it too far. Because they do know then that you can get demand destruction and they can tip the economy, global economy into recession because oil, as you've said, is a tax on consumers and corporate profit margins. So they have their own balancing act too. Equally, I think the salaries are showing who's boss and it's Riyadh, it's not Washington. Remember that the Americans complained when the Saudis pumped more oil in 2016 because the, the Saudis wanted to put shale back in its basket. And now the Americans are complaining that the Saudis aren't pumping enough. So they can't have it both ways, I suppose, can they? No. Well, Russ, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast and talking Pleasure. about oil. Brilliant to have you on. Now, thousands of people are expected to lose their jobs after the collapse of Wilco, which is in the process of closing its stores after getting into financial difficulty and struggling to cope with fierce competition on the high street. Now, what makes Wilco's situation a bit different is that several parties have already lined up to take some of the shops. Now, that might suggest some of those workers will have their employment transferred over, 
Um, but equally, if you're a regular shopper at Wilco, you might have some questions about products you recently bought from one of its shops. Um, perhaps you've got some gift cards or even queries about what happens when a company goes into administration and, and then potentially liquidation. You know, what, what does this mean for your rights as a consumer? So, Laura, should we just go through these points one by one? Just let's start with the, the refund rights on faulty products. So let's say you, you've, you've bought something from Wilco recently, not what you're thinking of. Um, you know, is there still time to go back to a store and get your money back or is it too late? So Wilco says that it's still accepting refunds now, whether that's for a faulty product or for something that you just want to return. Um, so you can still return items now, but if you're in that position, I would move quickly because as soon as the stores close and the company ceases trading, then you won't be able to get a refund from the store. Essentially what would happen in that situation is you would become one of the creditors for the business, an unsecured creditor, and you go into that long line of people that are owed money. However, if you do buy something from Wilco and then it um, becomes a faulty item and the stores have already closed, you do have another option open to you and that is using the Section 75 or chargeback rules. And this is, we've talked about this on the podcast before and there's more information um, available online, but this is essentially where you claim through your debit card or credit card provider. There's different rules depending on um, whether you're using debit card or credit card, but it could be that you could get your money back that way once Wilco has closed all its stores. What if you've got a gift card? I guess if a company's in administration, do they, they immediately stop taking gift cards or is there still a chance to use those before, um, you know, if the stores are still trading? So what happens when a company um, is closing is they put, appoint administrators, in this case it's PwC, um, and they make some of the decisions about how the companies run and they can decide to not accept any gift cards. In this instance with Wilco, PwC has said that it will carry on accepting Wilco gift cards in store. It never accepted them online, so that's not a change. Um, it will accept them in store, but only Wilco branded ones. You can get um, those gift cards that you can use in multiple different shops. I think they're called Love to Shop gift cards is one of the brands. It won't accept those, but that's fine because you can use them in lots of other different brands. Um, so yeah, if you've got a Wilco gift card, you can use it. But again, I would move quickly if you are in that situation because once the stores close, um, those gift cards become null and void and they become worthless. So if you've got money on gift cards, particularly if you've got a decent amount, I would get down to a store as soon as possible and spend that money. So I know that the, the Wilco brand uh, you know, business is not being saved, but Poundland and B&M are taking on some of the stores. Does that, does that mean that these new owners would then be responsible for refunding you on a sort of defective Wilco product? Or is there sort of a firm line that's simply taking the property and they're not taking any sort of, um, sort of you know, as a Wilco trading business? So no, I think in this situation, what they're doing is they're taking over the properties. Um, they're not necessarily taking on the Wilco brand. And so I think the liabilities will end um, when the Wilco brand goes. So a lot of that is kind of to be worked out in the small print. But I think really the big message to shoppers now is if you've got gift cards, go and spend them quickly. If you want to buy something from Wilco, um, you need to move quickly. If you want a refund, you need to move quickly. Um, 
But also there's a bit of a word of warning. I think sometimes when people see stores closing down, they think, oh, it's a great time to get a bargain. And it may be, but you just need to be aware that things like refunds, faulty products, all of those things are going to be harder to get your money back from once the store is closed. So yes, go and grab a bargain if you want to, but just be mindful that you're not going to have the same kind of customer service um, that you would have had previously when the store remained open. So just one more question on, on Wilco. If you've bought something from its website online, where do you stand there in terms of your rights to get um, money back if it's a faulty product or anything like that? Yeah, so it's a little bit tricky. Some people, um, they've actually stopped online shopping now, but some people would have placed orders online before and those might now not be delivered. Um, there's not issuing automatic refunds for those. So you need to go in store to get a refund for that item that you've bought online that's not going to arrive. It's a bit frustrating for people if they don't live very near a store because the only way that they can get a refund is to go into a store. Um, Wilco is accepting click and collect orders online still. So where you order online and then you go in store to collect it. Um, but I would be a bit wary about doing that because if you place your click and collect order and you pay online um, and then the store closes before you get there to collect it, then you're leaving yourself with a bit of a headache when it comes to the refund. So I would definitely act with a bit of caution there. Now, just while we're on the subject of the high street, there is some bit of news. I've been sort of catching my eye over the last couple of months, either side of the um, the Atlantic. So th this is a problem in the US and the UK, and it's shoplifting. Um, and it's having, sort of, there's, I guess there's two ways to look at it. One, it's clearly having a negative impact on company earnings. And of course, any companies on the stock market that's related here, they're seeing um, you know a dent in their share price. But also to consumers, and it sort of raises the question of, um, you know, a rise in shoplifting, does that mean that there's even more people than perhaps we thought under really big financial pressure, really struggling to, you know, you know, the fact that we've had high inflation, uh, interest rates are going up, they're just, they're struggling to to get by. So I think some people may be thinking, well, I, I'm in a sort of state of desperation here. So unless I go to, for example, go to a food bank, um, you know, is one of my options um, shoplifting? And of course, you know, no one wants to see this at all, this, you know, this, this situation here. But um, notably, companies are talking about how this problem is just getting worse and worse. Um, the, the boss of John Lewis even called it an, an epidemic. Um, so we've seen people like Co-op, um, Tesco, Iceland saying that they're spending really heavily on sort of anti-crime measures. Um, in America, so we've had Target said it was going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars to what it called something called shrink. And this seems to be the term everyone's now using to sort of describe theft and organized retail crime. Um, in America as well, Dick's Sporting Goods uh, said, you know, the theft was a big problem in its recent quarter. And, that, and that's caused, you know, a near 25% slump in second quarter profits. So uh, understandably, its share price fell there. So I don't know if you say, so Laura, if you if you've been in the supermarket recently, because I, I keep hearing reports that things like uh, you know meat and cheese have now got security tags on. If you go to a co-op, there's like um, co you know, coffee cans being replaced by dummy jars. You've got to go to the counter to ask for them. Have you seen any of that at all? Yeah, so much more stuff is in those big plastic boxes. And actually, last time I was in the big supermarket near me, there was a man being arrested for stealing tins of baby formula, which I think is 
quite heartbreaking, actually, if that's something that he needs. But what's interesting is I think you you mentioned that a lot of the supermarkets and retailers have come out talking about how this is a big problem in their stores. Lots of them seem to be pinpointing it on organized crime rings who are stealing goods that they then sell on rather than just desperate people who have run out of money. And I think that's an interesting um, it must be quite hard to pin down exactly what it is, whether it is organised crime rings or whether it is individuals who are struggling. Um, but either way, it's a, a result of the cost of living crisis. I think it's quite interesting what um, different stores are doing. I mean, you mentioned there about cheese being put in these big plastic boxes that you have to get unlocked at checkouts. Um, I noticed that Waitrose and John Lewis have said that police officers can have free coffee in stores because they think even the presence of a police car outside the store or police officers in store will help to reduce the instances of shoplifting. Um, Other retailers have said that they've given uh, their staff body cams to wear because when staff are trying to accost people who are shoplifting, there's a rise in assault. So it's um, you can see that it's had a really widespread impact. And from an investor point of view, all of this has a cost to the the business, whether that's providing those body cams, handing out free coffee, or just the loss of items as well. Yeah, and the, the, I guess there's one other point to consider here is that whilst you know. We're reading about this a lot in the papers, and you know, seeing it with our, ourselves and experiencing it in shops. Um, this sort of high-profile coverage of shoplifting is, is almost glamorizing it. And, it. and if you actually go onto TikTok, social media network, there's loads of videos of people swapping tactics on how to shoplift, giving advice on which is the oh, best wow. shops that you can steal from. I mean, you now that is worrying, isn't it? So it's, um, and I think last month we saw that there was a campaign. Um, supposedly orchestrated on social media that that led to hundreds of teenagers gathering outside um the sort of the shoe shop jd sports in in london um you know obviously that led to you know sort of chaos people getting arrested um some shops having to temporary shuts you know while they dealt, dealt with all these people there but um yeah this is this is a really big problem so i think that um i guess the more more we read about it you know the you know, like I say, on one hand, we should be worried that some people are feeling that they're in this sort of desperate state to that this, they've got no alternative. But um, you know, there are some people you know, almost exploiting this situation, um, and, and that's a terrible, you know, terrible situation to be in. Um, so, Laura, unlike most people who are away over the summer, I know that you've actually been busy working on a report about financial inequality amongst women. What have you found? <laughs> Yeah, so we did a lot of research, a big research report looking into the different kind of financial differences between men and women, but particularly looking at the areas in a woman's life where um, she might hit these financial wobbles and potentially where finances can go off track. So we know from previous research that we've done that there is a big gap between the amount of money that men and women have in things like savings, investments, in their pension. But we really wanted to drill down into what sparks that? What are the different things that happen in a woman's life that mean that she ends up with less money overall and and ultimately less money in retirement? So we've looked at all of these different factors, some of which will affect all women, um, some will only affect some women. um, And it's things like starting out in your career, women are much less likely to ask for a pay rise or negotiate on salary and benefits when they start a job, um, all the way through to having children and the impact that career breaks have on you. 
and on your your pension and your income um, through to the menopause and also caring responsibilities later in life, whether that's for grandchildren or whether that's for elderly parents. Um, so there's lots of really good data in there and you can find out more about it at ajbellmoneymatters.co.uk. But I thought it might be worth um, drilling in a bit into the pension side of things. So we looked at the gap between men and women when it comes to their pension pots. Um, and on average, men had almost £49,000 in their pension pot, and that's across all age groups. So that will include some 60-year-olds who or 70-year-olds who are just coming to retire, um, but it will also include some kind of 20-year-olds who are just starting out in their savings. Um, in comparison, women had just over £32,000 in their pension. So there's a big pensions gap there of just over £16,000. And there's a lot of kind of different factors that go into that. Some of it is the gender pay gap with women getting paid less than men. Some of it is women taking career breaks. Um, but some of it is also women just being less likely to engage with their pension. So what we found is that a third of women had no idea how much was in their pension pot. They just hadn't engaged with that. They were maybe paying in through their salary each month, but they hadn't engaged with how much was in there, whether they were saving enough for retirement and whether they were on track to have a comfortable retirement. Um, other things that we noticed were men are much more likely to pay in more than the minimum. So we know that auto-enrollment has been really good at boosting pension engagement. It means that far more people now have pensions because their employer will automatically put them into one. Um, but we also know that those minimum amounts that people are putting in, so um, which at the moment totals up 8% of salary between the employer, the employee and tax relief. Um, we know that that isn't enough to provide a comfortable pension in retirement and to provide a, a pension pot that people can um, live on. And what we found is that women are much less likely to increase their contributions above those minimum levels. Men are more likely to. Um, interestingly, women are more likely to if their employer offers them an incentive. So if their employer says, I'll match up to a higher level, they were much more likely to be motivated to increase their pension contributions. Whereas more men just did it off their own back or because they got a pay rise or because they had more spare money. Um, and as a result, men just felt much more likely that their pension was going to provide them with a decent income in retirement, whereas women were far more uncertain about their retirement and their, and their future, um, presumably because lots of them either aren't engaging with their pension or are paying in less. Um, so we've got lots of tips in the report in terms of how you can engage with that. We didn't want to just offer up the problems. We're also offering up some solutions of, of how women can help to bridge this gap and engage more with their pensions. So definitely go and check it out if that's of interest. Yeah, I think it's good. I, I was having a reader report um, just before we were pulling this podcast together. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely well worth the look. Go to ajbellmoneymatters.co.uk. You can download the report there and also see some um, other sort of related content about um, sort of encouraging women to sort of get more engaged in, in the world of finance and investing. And we also have a podcast as well, an alternative podcast. Um, uh, for Money Matters, which is on a whole host of different topics. And our latest one is actually um, interviewing um, celebrity and model Lisa Snowden, all about the menopause and midlife and the money issues that she's had through her life. So definitely check that out. You can find that on the website that Dan just mentioned. Um, but before we go, there is just enough time to deliver some potentially good news regarding the state pension. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the government uses this triple lock system to decide on the rate of growth in state pension each year. So it, it takes the highest of average earnings inflation or 2.5%. Now, it looks at this sort of the seasonally adjusted pay growth from three months to July for the earnings component. And then it looks at um, CPI inflation data in September. So we now know that earnings grew by 8.5% for the three-month period. And I think market forecasts would suggest that the next inflation reading is not going to be as high as that. So um, that's sort of led people to suggest that from next April, we could be looking at an 8.5% rise in in state pension. So if you're on the old state pension, it would mean an extra £691.60 a year. And that would take it up to £8,814. If you're on the new state pension, that could go up by just over £900 a year to £11,502. Now, um, this is all, you know, these are all sort of decent rises, but this is not guaranteed to happen. So since those figures have come out, there's been sort of a bit of a, a sort of um, slight backlash uh, sort of unofficially from, from government sort of saying, hmm, you know, we're, we're not making a guarantees at the moment. We're going to have to do a proper review this autumn. But what they're pointing out is that um, you might use a lower figure for earnings because that 8.5% figure was actually boosted by giving bonuses to public sector workers to settle pay disputes. So there's been a suggestion the figure for earnings could be used at 7.8%. So um, that would be the overall rate that excludes bonuses. So um, wait and see. But I think, I think what we can probably say with... Um, some confidence that you know, you're still looking at a fairly decent, chunky rise in state pension, and that would be the second year in the row that that would have happened. Yeah, last year we saw uh, just over 10% increase, um, and it also meant that the government increased other benefits by that amount. Um, and so there's a bigger kind of implication on this that if they increase the state pension, then they may also feel duty bound to increase other benefits by this bumper amount. Um, and it's definitely sparked a lot of debate, hasn't it, in the media and among commentators and MPs about whether that state pension is sustainable long term because it's going to represent a huge cost to the government. Um, and it sparks that kind of intergenerational divide debate about at the moment, lots of younger people aren't seeing huge pay rises, um, but those on the state pension will be seeing that bigger increase. Equally, it's taken a lot of pensioners out of poverty, the triple lock, um, because it has increased that state pension dramatically each year. And so um, I think it's a debate that we'll see rolling into the next general election. Interestingly, Labour wouldn't be drawn on whether they would maintain the triple lock. Um, they said that they would need to look at the finances before they agreed to committing to that um, as one of their manifesto pledges. So we'll definitely hear more on this, won't we? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's podcast. Danny Houston will be talking to an expert about IPOs and what to expect over the coming months. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.